Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. A former factory worker in China made global headlines in April when he chose to lie flat and opt for a slower lifestyle than is culturally accepted. It's a feeling that has resonated with many in the U.S., in particular with millennials and Gen Z, who are leading what's been termed the Great Resignation, where workers feel more confident in making career changes that better meet their needs. Writers Cassidy Rosenblum and Elsie Granderson each reflect on this growing shift in our relationship with work in recent essays, and they'll join us to discuss today's culture of work in the U.S. And later, we'll check in on U.S. Open Tennis, which is underway in New York, and implementing a first-ever mental health initiative to support players. That's all next, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. When 31-year-old Luo... Hujuang quit his factory job in April and posted a picture of himself lying on his bed with the message, lying flat is justice. He made global headlines. Instead of being consumed by the constant work hustle, he was opting to work odd jobs and assume an overall slower lifestyle than is culturally accepted. It's a feeling that resonates with many in the U.S. as well, particularly with millennials and Gen Z. And it resonated with our guest, Cassidy Rosenblum, who wrote an op-ed for the New York Times about the lying flat movement and others who are expressing their desires for a culture that is less about grinding and more friendly to lying flat. It's titled, Work is a False Idol. Welcome to Forum, Cassidy Rosenblum. Thanks so much for having me. So, Cassidy, what motivated you to write this column? So, I had quit my own job earlier this year, and um, I was spending a lot of time lying flat at my parents' house in West Virginia, although I didn't know that's what I was doing at the time um, until a friend forwarded me an article first um, by Business Insider and then another in the Washington Post, both which came out in early June. And they were describing this Chinese trend of lying flat. Um, And just for your listeners who haven't read the articles, I really encourage them to do so. They were full of these excellent interviews um, with Chinese millennials, really describing what the lying flat movement means to them. And some were describing, you know, taking a break from work for mental health reasons. Others were describing maybe not quitting work, but um, reducing their hours or maybe freelancing and how, you know, Maybe they are living in a more modest house, eating more frugal meals now than they would if they were working a corporate job, but how this lifestyle um, feels better to them. 
still others were describing how lying flat means maybe not having a family, maybe not having children, um, which, you know, of course, is not happy news to the Chinese Communist Party, who earlier this summer um, upped the two-child policy to three children to try to spur population growth. And in all of these stories, I really related um, to these Chinese millennials. And it was almost as if they were really holding up a mirror and I saw myself reflected. Because something that really surprised me was that all of these articles really framed the lying flat movement as an almost exclusively Chinese phenomenon. And, um, you know, as if lying flat was a natural consequence to China's hyper-competitive economy and society. But to me, my first thought was, it's not just Chinese. I know many Americans who work very long hours. I know many, many Americans who are sort of at their breaking point, um, myself included. And I think that while there are important differences between us and different cultural contexts, we all live under the same global capitalist system. And I think what we're seeing is more and more people refusing to play by those rules, whether they're in China or whether they're here in the U.S. And you weren't alone in in you sharing your sentiments because you received a lot of mail in response to your com- into your, in response to your column. Can you share some of what you heard from readers who resonated with your perspective and what you took away from the response? Yeah, so the reactions were really overwhelming. I received hundreds of emails from people all over the country. Um, and I'd say about 20 percent, you know, were people kind of calling me a spoiled brat, which I anticipated. Um, but 80 percent were people who said that, um, you know, this really resonated with them on a deep level. And they were saying things like, um, and I quote, the system is coming undone. We are biting at our ankle chains. There were a lot of healthcare workers represented, a lot of journalists, a lot of former finance professionals. Um, And I even heard from one former finance professional who said he had realized work was a false idol and actually quit his finance job to become a firefighter, which Hmm. I thought was very interesting that his version of lying flat was fighting fires (laughs) because that doesn't sound very flat to me. Um, But I think it gets at something really interesting, which is a lot of people hear lying flat and they think, oh, you know, these people are lazy. Well, maybe, but I think that, you know, fighting fires, of course, is not lazy. And it takes a lot of courage for, you know, a former Goldman Sachs worker or iBanker or someone to say, you know what, I actually want to work this quote unquote blue collar job Mm -hmm. and give up some of my status because this feels better to me for whatever reason. And you cite a viral tweet, another example and story, um, by at Hollaback Girl that reads, I do not want to have a career. I want to sit on the porch. And that received over 400,000 likes on Twitter. And you ended up speaking with the young woman behind that tweet and learning more of her story. What is the story behind that tweet? Yeah, so um, this is a girl named Becca McNair, who's 22, and she told me that she sent that tweet um, whenever she was working in a nursing home, barely making rent, um, and was not expecting it to go viral. Again, this is really something that's just striking a chord, I think, with a lot of people right now. And she had sort of given up an acting career um, because 
you know, it just seemed really grueling to her and she didn't want the thing that she loved to be tied to um, work. And so instead she's now working in the coffee shop, she's doing murder mystery dinner theater. And she says that this is a better arrangement for her. And that, when I read that, it reminded me of another viral tweet that I saw months ago where a woman reflected on missing her job as a barista um, as a younger adult, saying it was like one of the most fulfilling work experiences. And she felt like a part of a community with her regulars and lamented that it's hard to make a living as a barista. Otherwise, she would take up that job. Right, right. And I think that this really gets at the difference between, um, you know, a job and a career, Um, which is something I've been pondering. And something interesting I learned in writing this piece is that the word career actually comes from the Latin word caris, which meant a wagon or a chariot. You can hear how we get the word car Mm. from that. Um, And over time, it evolved to uh, the French word carrière, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. Um, But carrière was a racetrack. And I think that it's so fitting that our English word career comes most directly from a French word meaning racetrack, because there are a lot of ways that a career, I think, feels like a racetrack. You know, you have the repetition of the laps. There's a sense of performance to be the fastest or the best. And, you know, you're doing this for the hope of, you know, a rose of garland someday. And, um, you know, a job, I think, is a little bit different. A job, I think, is something you do that allows you to live in a particular place. Um, for instance, I'm working a job right now as a reporter for our local paper in West Virginia. It's a very small paper. It serves a rural county of about 7,000 people. And I file stories covering court and city council and things like this. And, you know, I'm never going to win any awards doing this. It's really not even read by that many people. But it allows me to keep gas in my tank and pay my phone bill and cover some of my basic expenses and um, live in West Virginia where I can go swimming in the river if I want to on a random Tuesday afternoon. And um, it's not so stressful or time consuming that I don't have time to work on my own longer term writing projects. And I think that, you know, this is an arrangement that Hollebeck Girl and others are beginning to explore. We're considering the culture of work in the U.S. and how many are rethinking their relationship to work in this era of COVID. I'm talking with Cassidy Rosenblum, writer, whose recent New York Times op-ed is titled Work is a False Idol. And we want to include you, our listeners, and hear your stories. Has this past year prompted you to think about your relationship to your job and whether it's right for you anymore? Have you changed the work you do or your approach to it? And for anyone who hasn't had time to reflect on their relationship, because that's very real, um, because it's a constant grind to make ends meet, tell us what's one thing that would make your job or work situation better. Um, And no wish list is too big or small for this conversation. So give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And Cassidy Rosenblum, let's talk a bit about kind of the privilege conversation. And I know you mentioned some of the feedback you got about, you know, being a a spoiled brat um, for your perspective. And there is some of that rightful pushback, not in, in that context, but in 
saying like, sure, this is nice to consider lying flat, you know, if you have parents with a house to go to or people with corporate jobs and savings accounts. But what about those who may work in a minimum wage job or those who don't have a family safety net or any safety net at all to fall back on? What were the reflections and um, thinking that you had around um, privilege in this conversation? Yeah, so I think that, you know, there's tremendous privilege in lying flat. And I am the first to say that I could not be lying flat if I had dependents or if I had um, school debt, which most people do, which I think, you know, puts me in an unusually free category. Um, And above all, I'm privileged to have two parents who are basically, you know, who have said, look, you're self-sufficient for your 20s. We don't think this is a failure to launch situation. Take as much time as you want to live in our house. And, um, you know, all of this is a lot of privilege. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I don't think that being debt-free or being able to rest or spend time with family or spend time in nature should be these rare exclusive privileges. I think they should be things that everyone has enough time and money to enjoy. And um, that's the world we have to build. You know, I was speaking with a friend recently who was telling me about these old bathhouses in the Soviet Union that the former Soviet Union built for its workers. And they were divided by profession. So if you were a postal worker, you went to a particular postal worker bathhouse in the countryside and you got to stay there for free with your family for a month every summer. And I think this example is so amazing, you know, because people will say, well, that's the Soviet Union. It collapsed for a reason. And I say to them, you know, what happened to our American sense of imagination and innovation? If we can put a man on the moon or talk about colonizing Mars, surely we should be able to figure out how to get people um, more time uh, to enjoy their lives. I think that we don't have to settle for crumbs. It's all about our priorities. Cassidy Rosenblum, writer whose recent New York Times op-ed is titled Work is a False Idol. More with her after the break. We'll go in hearing a song inspired by Luo Huajang. It's by Zhang Xinmin, and it's all about lying flat. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail in Fermina Kim. We're considering the culture of work in the U.S. and how many are rethinking their relationship to work in this era of COVID. I'm talking with Cassidy Rosenblum, a writer whose recent New York Times op-ed is titled Work is a False Idol. And you, our listeners, let us know your stories. Um, if you've been prompted to think about your relationship with work, especially in this past year, and if you haven't had time to have those deep reflections Just tell us, what's one thing that would make your job or work situation better? 866-733-6786. You can also email your comments to forum at kqed.org. And Kathleen writes, 
I hope you will talk about the Knapp ministry and the rest as justice movement by black people in this country. And that is actually a question that I had for you, Cassidy, um, because you you do highlight black thinkers and writers who are really vocal and articulate about these ideas. You mentioned Casey Gerald, who wrote a piece in 2019 titled The Black Art of Escape and Trisha Hersey's Knapp ministry that Kathleen cited as who advocates rest as resistance. Um, you also reference Audre Lorde. Can you describe what their work, what about their work? work really stirs you when thinking about work? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think that I'll talk about Audre Lorde in particular. She has an essay called um, Uses of the Erotic, the Erotic as Power. And she talks about um, what the erotic is. And I think in our society and modern parlance, um, we have this concept that the erotic has something to do with sex. But in this essay, Lord really is making the argument that it's not just sex, it's really anything that satisfies our deepest cravings. And when we can get in touch with our deepest cravings, which are different individual by individual, um, and really have to do with our own sense of intuition and what feels right to us and what feels good to us, we're able to reject kind of all of these outer sources of authority, like Instagram or Hollywood or, you know, whatever they may be. Um, and when we begin to live from that place of self-knowledge, um, that is when we really um, are able to live the good life. And um, I think this is a really dangerous concept. <laughs> to a lot of people and certainly, you know, the Chinese Communist Party and maybe even, um, you know, the, the ruling class here, because when you start listening to yourself and taking yourself as the chief authority, um, you know, instead of filling that void with material things, um, you know, you, you stop spending a, less, a lot less money for one. Yeah. That's one thing you stop doing. And I, I... Oh, I think we're breaking up. Your line was breaking up a little bit, Cassidy. But actually, we have another guest joining us now. Elsie Granderson is a columnist for the Los Angeles Times and host of the podcast Living Out Loud with Elsie Granderson. His recent column looks at this recent phenomenon here in the U.S. being called the Great Resignation. And his column is titled Why the Great Resignation of 2021 is a Sign of Hope. Welcome to Forum, Elsie Granderson. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. So, Elsie, can you tell us a bit about what the Great Resignation is and some of the some of the key stats from that Adobe study you reference in your column that tells us about work culture in the U.S. right now? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I, I have to say that I'm not responsible for the phrase of the Great Resignation. I'm not sure who is. So I don't want to take credit for it. But I think it's a perfect description of what we've been witnessing basically uh, sort of during the heart of the pandemic, which was people, workers uh, being at home, many working remotely, some having to work in service industry jobs where they're putting their lives at risk because let's face it, many of us did not know, um, you know the degree in which the pandemic would impact this country early on, let alone the, the amount of people who become ill and unfortunately pass away from the virus. So you're, you have a group of people who are in the industry working, uh, putting their lives at risk with little information. And you have people who are fortunate enough uh, to be able to work remotely from home. All of those individuals are reassessing what it means to be an employee 
in this country, what it means to work, and more importantly, what exactly is work-life balance. And so what we've been witnessing has been a real young person-led reassessment in which they've decided that this isn't how I want to spend my time anymore. This job isn't what I want to do anymore. This career field isn't what I'm passionate about. And I, I, the reason why I describe it as a sense of great hope is because for so long, the idea of the American dream was so commercial driven. It was mm -hmm. about what you can acquire. And now you're beginning to see, again, being led by younger generations, this redefining of the American dream, which is it's not about how much stuff you can get, but rather, are you enjoying trying to get whatever it is that you want? Right. <laughs> and uh, we actually have a comment from Julia who says, I think a lot of the great resignation is about standing up for job quality. But I'm also starting to think it's about the feeling that the world is in crisis. Sometimes it feels apocalyptic. Who wants to work when it seems like the world is ending? And Elsie, you, you allude to and you write about a lot of, you know, the things that we are grappling with. And it's also why you said this kind of great resignation movement feels like a sign of hope for you. Can you talk more about that? Sure. Uh, to me, the hope was the, the fact that we are beginning to see people take control of their lives, take control of the things that they can control. I mean, you look around, there are so many issues that I'm sure all of us have touched on at some point over the last 12 months in which you feel powerless to do anything about whether it's the homelessness issue, whether it's climate change, whether it's what's happening right now in Texas, whether it's the Afghanistan withdrawal, there's so many devastating bits of information coming to us in so many different forms of medium that makes us feel powerless. And that, you know, to that um, caller or to that contributor's uh, note, mm -hmm. um, makes us feel as if there's nothing that we can do and there's a sense of hopelessness. Yeah. But the great resignation is actually empowering. It's saying, I'm choosing to leave this line of work and I'm choosing to pursue something else that either values me more or entertains me more or make me feel more fulfilled or, or even something even paying me more money or better health insurance or yeah. whatever the motivation is. It's about people taking control of their lives because yeah. there's so much around us in which it makes you feel as if you don't have control. Well, let's go to caller Camelia in Sebastopol. Camelia, you're on. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call, and I super appreciate hearing this conversation. Um, in the last year, I stepped away from being an active real estate agent to being a full-time stay-at-home mom for my two kids. And, you know, part of what I've been thinking about lately is the entire way we have built our system from the educational system on through up to this uh, the way in which work often makes us feel like we're cogs in a wheel, this machine that has to churn. It has to do with productivity. It has to do with the ability to purchase. Um, down to things like the impact of industrialization and our nuclear family and isolation where families are tucked in their individual bubbles, isolated from the rest of the community. And, you know, that I really appreciate um, that last comment about how we attribute our value or how we take our value from our careers and our work. And, you know, having to pull back from being an active member of the workforce and finding the inherent value of educating the young people, my two young people in my house, 
and the longing in my heart for a slower paced life and my longing for more connection within my community and looking around and saying, you know what? Our society is just not set up that way. Um, and I had the you know, wonderful opportunity of living in Spain in my 20s. And I remember watching families walk down the Ramblas with these huge extended families and taking siesta and closing up shop and having lunch together and these ways of community being that yeah. just don't, they're shunned. In, like if people do that around here, you're seen as lazy or not motivated enough or right. I, yeah. I don't know. Like and, I don't have any solution, but I definitely am in that place where I'm looking around going, you know what, this is deeply systemic and this is fundamental to the way we've arranged things. So how yeah. do we begin to untangle things? Yeah. So, Thank you so much. Yeah, and thank you, Camelia. <laughs> no problem. Thank you, Camelia, for, for sharing your comment as well. Um, and it kind of, Sam writes a comment that echoes that. When your guest talked about the barista missing her job, I resonated with that because I've been working from home for a year and a half now and really miss my community. I sometimes think about getting a weekend job like that just to interact with people again. So it really, we really are looking at a point of, again, being people-centered with this. And Cassidy Rosenblum, I'm not sure if you had any um, reaction to yeah. Camelia's comment. Yeah, so I'm so happy Camelia brought up Spain because I feel like every time I travel outside of the U.S., I get this exact same sense. And something I'm always surprised by is people very rarely ask you, what do you do? It's just a less common mm. question than we receive here in the U.S. And a lot of times I see you know, people are defined, their value is defined not by how, you know, um, advanced they are in their career, but how good of a friend are they? How good of a daughter or son are they? And the value is a lot more social, like Camelia was describing. And um, it makes me think about, you know, some of some of the criticism that I have gotten for from people um, and some of the vitriol of, you know, saying you're just a spoiled millennial and things like that. Um, you know, sometimes the reaction is so big. It's almost like what they teach you in therapy when someone's having a giant reaction. It's not about you. It's about them. And I think that for people who are really troubled um, by this idea, I think that there's almost this underlying fear. And I think the fear is if I'm not a worker, then what am I? There's mm. almost this loss of identity or this void underneath that question. Um, and yet, I don't think that it needs to be something that we're afraid of. I think there are other ways of defining ourselves. It's just that for so long, we really have been worshiping work as if it is an idol, as if it is a god in this country. Right. And Elsie, a lot of your sentences packed a punch, but one of them for me was, after all, no one dies wishing they had spent more time at the office, right? right. I mean, it, that is so true. And, but, and you know, I, I didn't come up with, the, with that idea, obviously. We've heard it in different right. forms over and over again. But it's disturbing that we keep hearing it, but we don't seem to catch on to the real meaning of it. Right. <laughs> about, about how we do need to foster this larger cultural shift. And, you know, we saw some of this conversation happening in the early days of the Affordable Care Act conversation because uh, President Obama was really focused in on freeing Americans up for having to have a typical nine to five job in order to have health insurance. Remember for many generations, 
the only access to health insurance was by doing that nine to five grinding job, whether you were fulfilled with it or not, whether it was paying you well or not. Um, with the Affordable Care Act, that ushered in a conversation in terms of the gig uh, economy. And I think the great, re the great resignation is just a further extension of that cultural shift where we're, we're detaching our definition, we're detaching our very meaning of ourselves away from the nine to five and more towards other things that we say are, are more important, like our own mental health, like our children, like taking care of our parents and being in our friends' lives more. I mean, we say those things are important all the time. We just don't live that way. All right. Well, let's go to caller Karen in Pleasanton. Karen, you're on. Hi. I love the comment that was made about uh, when you go to other countries, people don't ask what you do. Because we were in uh, Europe a couple of years ago, and in Austria specifically, and we were having a conversation with our housekeeper. And she was talking about how she has ac access to health care at no cost. She has access to education through college if she's eligible uh, for it in terms of, you know, grades and, and, and qualifications. And um, she has pension built into her full-time salary. And this is an unskilled essential worker who has complete security in her job. And when you look at the election that happened uh, with Donald Trump, I think a huge part of that uh, win for him was making what turned out to be false promises to the lower middle classes about bringing all their jobs back and bringing their health care and their pension and all of that back. This is what people really care about. And this is what this new shift in the millennial generations is also looking at. So I'd like to hear more about, you know, what are other countries doing that allow for this kind of accommodation of the workforce that our country just simply isn't doing? And you look at what's happening historically over the last, you know, eight to 10 years, and this is what people are upset about. This is why people vote for Donald Trump. This is why millennials are, are lying back or whatever you call it. So I'd, I'd love to hear that conversation more on a global scale. Right. And Cassidy Rosenblum, do you have any quick reflections for, for Karen? I don't know if there were other international examples that you looked at. You know, I mean, not not off the top of my head. I, I feel like we're so accustomed to hearing about the generous parental leave and the generous, you know, vacation time that so many European countries right. have. And it really just does the, beg the question of, you know, if they can do it, why can't we? This is about choices. Yeah. Oh, well, let's try and squeeze one more caller, Clara in Woodlands. Clara, you're on. Hi. Um, thank you for taking my call. This this is really uh, pertinent to what I've experienced in the last couple of years. I um, I really appreciate what a previous caller said about this idea of what, who you are is your work. And I was a school teacher and in a decision to step out of that, in a sense, I thought I'd lost status because mm. when you say you're a teacher and you're helping kids and you're doing all this good work, kind of defines you as a person who's a teacher and not a person who has feelings or has mm. needs or a life. And kids even like, well, what do you do when you leave? You know, well, I actually, you know have fun and I do, you know, martial arts and blah, blah, blah. And, and 
I was by the end of teaching, and I was a, I started late in my career. By the end of twenty years, I was burned out, and frankly, not a good person to be in a classroom. And you know that's hard to admit to, because you're supposed to have these ideals that you give yourself away for kids, and I couldn't anymore. And I decided to retire. I was, and I retired with a pension. And I have advantages that other people, you know, in this position don't have. Is my pension is modest, but it pays my bills, pays my mortgage, it pays, you know, my utilities. I own my own car. My yeah. expenses are are small, but also I've been preparing my life to be a massage therapist, and now I have a, you know, a practice that went to a standstill with with COVID and that was hard, but I could find joy in my life. I have the advantage of health insurance. So so another person mentioned, you know, people have jobs to take care of health insurance. Well, I I hate to to rush you through, but we are getting to our last minute. And I just really appreciate you you sharing the reflections that you had and and the journey that you've been going on with your relationship to your job and work. And and glad to hear you're finding a little bit more more joy in in what you're doing. And Cassidy Rosenblum, we're going to have to say goodbye to you at the break. I know LZ Granderson, you'll be sticking around to talk U.S. Open tennis. But Cassidy, do you just have a final thoughts on on how you want people to be thinking about work and rest going forward. Yeah, well, you know, something really interesting, someone wrote me and said that um, I actually stumbled upon something coincidentally, which is that the word stoic comes from the Greek word stoa, which meant porch. Hmm. And that's because the original stoic philosophers were sitting on their porches um, discussing how to live a life of contentment in spite of hardship. And, um, you know, in my piece, I said the best thing we can do is sit on our porches right now. Well, well, with that, (laughs) well, Cassidy Rosenblum, writer, New York Times op-ed. This is Forum. I'm Mariana Prail. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.